Ariel Sharon was a study in contrasts and transformations. He was a hawk, but not an ideologue. He was the architect of the Israeli settlement movement, an opponent of Palestinian statehood, yet he would take some crucial steps to reverse settlement progress and advance Palestinian claims to statehood. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Israeli-Arab-American relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Markovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Ariel Sharon, who also went by the nickname Arik, was born on a moshav near Tel Aviv in 1928. Widely regarded as an extraordinary soldier, Sharon's military career included every Israeli war from the 1948 War of Independence until the 1973 Yom Kippur War. He was nearly killed in the 1948 Battle of Latrun. During his time in the hospital, after the battle, Sharon mulled over the failures of the operation, drawing lessons that would guide future military endeavors. After the 1967 war, Sharon began his role in the settler movement. At the time, some cabinet ministers were looking for ways to use the land taken during the war as bargaining chips for peace with its neighbors. Sharon instead saw an Israeli presence in the West Bank and Sinai as a guarantee of Israel's security. Sharon emphasized strategic depth and security, not historical and biblical claims to the lands, as opposed to many others in the settlement movement. Sharon became a national hero in the 1973 war when he led parachutists behind Egyptian lines and crossed the Suez Canal. The war ended with Israel surrounding Egypt's Third Army in the Sinai. Sharon was also a self-proclaimed enemy of Palestinian nationalism. In 1982, as defense minister, he planned and launched Operation Peace for Galilee to expel the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, from southern Lebanon. The mission would succeed in expelling the PLO, while at the same time trapping Israel in 18 years of a war of attrition in southern Lebanon. Israel's non-intervention in a Christian massacre of Muslims outside of Beirut would create a public uproar in Israel, lead to Sharon's ouster as defense minister, and hurt his reputation. As Minister of Housing and Construction, in the early 1990s, Sharon would become infamous for announcing a new settlement project each time U.S. Secretary of State James Baker would arrive in Israel to try to start peace talks. This earned him a ban on official meetings with American officials when he visited the United States. Sharon was highly critical of the Oslo process and subsequent peace talks of the 1990s and early 2000s when he was in the Israeli opposition. Sharon would put his disapproval into action on September 28, 2000, when he visited the Temple Mount, or Haram al-Sharif, in the old city of Jerusalem with hundreds of Israeli security guards and soldiers. Many cite this visit as a spark that lit the Second Intifada, which would last until early 2005. After Ehud Barak's government collapsed, Sharon would become prime minister in February 2001. His campaign ran on the slogan, quote, only Sharon could bring peace, end quote, in an attempt to portray himself as a seasoned leader and to counter his legacy in Lebanon. 
Becoming prime minister caused Sharon to realize that Israel should not and could not sustain its rule over another people. He saw his role as a leader of Israel, as a link in the chain of Jewish history. He believed that there needed to be separation and that there must eventually be a Palestinian state in order to preserve the Zionist dream. In the 1990s, he was an opponent of a separation barrier, believing it would create a Palestinian state. However, once prime minister and faced with dozens and dozens of suicide bombs, he became the champion of the barrier. The second key factor was a series of letters from reserve air force pilots and Sayeret Matkal, or the elite special forces, reservists announcing that they would no longer participate in missions in the West Bank and Gaza. Third, Sharon felt international, especially American pressure. America needed progress on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to placate its Arab allies in the post-9-11 war on terror. Part of this progress was in the 2003 Roadmap to Peace, which Sharon and Palestinian Prime Minister Mahmoud Abbas agreed to with reservations. When Abbas resigned due to a conflict with Yasser Arafat, it should be pointed out, Sharon began to lose hope that this roadmap could be implemented. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice pointed out that Israel had to do something drastic to, quote, rock the boat, end quote. In December 2003, Sharon gave his first public talk about the disengagement plan, which would involve dismantling all 21 Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip and the removal of the Israeli Defense Forces from the territory, although Israel would maintain control over the coast and airspace. Additionally, the plan called for removing four settlements in the West Bank. Today, the state of Israel took a step of great importance for its future. The government of Israel approved the disengagement plan I presented. Israel is taking its future into its own hands. The move was incredibly divisive among Sharon's base, inside the Likud party. He wound up leaving the Likud party, where he had been a member for his entire political career, and he formed the new Kadima party. From August 15th to September 12th, 2005, Israeli soldiers carried out the evacuation of settlers, sometimes forcibly removing those who protested the plan. Sharon had kept his word. Gaza disengagement would mark a remarkable transformation of Ariel Sharon's political beliefs and would become one of the biggest parts of his legacy. It would also become one of his last actions in Israeli politics. Three months after the evacuation was completed, Sharon suffered a series of strokes that put him in a coma, and he passed away in January 2014. Here to discuss Ariel Sharon's transformation from settlement architect to the evacuation of Gaza are Stephen Hadley, who's joining us from Washington, and Dove Doobie Weissglass, who's joining us from the Tel Aviv area. Stephen Hadley served in several U.S. administrations. He was Deputy National Security Advisor in George W. Bush's first term, and he was the National Security Advisor during Bush's second term as Condoleezza Rice became Secretary of State. Doobie Weissglass is an Israeli lawyer who served as the closest policy advisor to Sharon when he was prime minister and had been a close confidant to Sharon for decades. He was one of the key architects of the Gaza disengagement. 
Doobie, give us a sense of Sharon's persona. In his era as a prime minister, he was an entirely different person. He always used to say that he is the last one who can look right into the eyes of the Israelis and tell them, listen, guys, we had a dream. It didn't come true. What he meant is the Eretz Israel Ashlema, you know, the greater Eretz Israel. What we accomplished, we did. What we did not, we will never do. So it's about time to bring an end to it. And basically, that was the main guideline that led him to adopt, to endorse so intensively the two-state solution that was led by President Bush and to deeply believe that he is the last one who can bring about a political solution with the Palestinians after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and after Ezer Weizmann passed away, he was the last leader who was actively fighting during our war of independence, who was not just still alive, but also still politically active. And he believed that the fact that he is the last remaining one, in a way, gives him or empowered him with a different political challenge, to be more accurate, with a different public challenge. He believed that to be one of the founding fathers, as it were, makes him capable to lead this revolutionary, this shocking move. And once he is gone, he used to say he cannot see around him anybody else who can lead such a complicated political move as he contemplated. Tell us a little bit about those early days, about his relationship with George Bush. Sharon thinks, of course, this is Bush the younger. He will pursue the policies of Bush the father, as he used to call him, George H.W. Bush. And I think Sharon did not really know what to expect with respect to Bush. Second, I think, and Doobie can talk about this, the early meetings were difficult because, one, these men were different in, in age. They were different generations. And as you listen to Sharon, it wasn't clear he had a little bit of a hearing problem. And in some sense, his spoken English seemed better than his comprehension of English. He would come in and he would have set formulas that he would use in the meetings with Bush in English that he was very comfortable with. So it sounded like you were having a conversation. But we many times were not sure whether he was really getting the nuances of what President Bush was saying. So there was a communication problem. And one of the things that was great when Doobie came on the scene is that Doobie would, in those meetings, would make sure that Sharon understood what the president was telling him. Second, at this point in Bush administration policy, it was before 9-11. I think Sharon felt that Bush did not appreciate the threat the terror posed to Israel. That, of course, changed after 9-11. After 9-11, of course, Sharon famously says the United States should be wary of selling out Israel to the Sunni states in the way that uh, Europe had sold out Czechoslovakia before World War II, a comment that did not sit very well with President Bush. If I get to say for our listeners, this is because in the early days of 9-11, the president did endorse a Palestinian state at the United Nations. And he also thought that Bush would try to downplay his relationship with Israel in order to strengthen his relationship with the Sunni states to try to bring them on 
our side in the fight against terror. I think was increasingly very reassuring to Sharon that in some sense, Bush and Sharon were now on the same side and on the same page because both of us had to fight terrorism. And that, I think, was the source of strengthening the relationship between the two and building some sense of confidence of Sharon in Bush. One of the other things, I think, that brought Bush and Sharon together was increasingly, after a number of incidents, the Karen A incident, where the Palestinians were caught basically getting arms from Iran, which would then feed the Intifada, the violence in the Intifada. A number of things caused Bush increasingly to see Arafat as a failed leader, as he said, who was in bed with the terrorists. And of course, the more Bush came to that conviction, the more it again closed a gap between he and Sharon. But Bush also cautioned Sharon that for the Israelis to kill Arafat would provoke a response against Israel, of course, on the West Bank, but a broader response among the Arab world, and that that was a problem for Israel, but it was also a problem for American interests. Bush had a different view of how to deal with Arafat, which came to fruition in the speeches he made in April of 2002 and June of 2002 when he basically branded Arafat as a failed leader who had not brought a better life for his people, and that it was compromised by terror. And in that June 2002 speech, he boldly called for new leadership among the Palestinian people, uncompromised by terror, committed to peace, and committed to building a democratic state with free institutions that was be worthy of the Palestinian people and would make a Palestinian state a good neighbor for Israel. Can you just say a word about how Karine affected President Bush personally? It basically led the president to conclude that Arafat was a liar, that his protestations of wanting to cooperate against terror were not to be believed. Doobie, after hearing what Steve just said, from the Sharon angle, you were Sharon's closest advisors. You went with him to all these Oval Office meetings. To what extent did the Second Intifada, how that changed the way Arik Sharon saw President Bush? As you rightly said, for many, many years, the relationship between Sharon and the U.S. administration were pretty sour. And I think the turning point was his third visit to the White House that was on May 2002. And soon afterwards, President Bush's speech on June 24, 2002, the one that you had just referred to. In this speech, it is not just that the president practically crossed Arafat as a leader by saying that the Palestinian people deserve a new, different leadership, but also for the first time since the foundation of the State of Israel, an American president set a very clear political sequence. A, in the first place, the Palestinians should stop terrorizing, reform their governance system, turn themselves into working society. The president spoke about rule of law, budgetarian system, transparency, judicial system. And only then, after they will accomplish all these benchmarks and will reform themselves into the standards of a Western society, 
only then the political process will start, the final status negotiation. We'll be back after this very brief message. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. A big issue during the Second Intifada was the security barrier that went up. So what was that like, that shift in his philosophy about settlements and the idea of working with the White House to really shape the contours of this barrier? The main drive behind the barrier, and as you rightly mentioned at the beginning, Sharon was very much against was the fact that Israel totally failed in its struggling against terrorism. And what I mean when I say terrorism, I mean primarily the suicidal attacks. You know, with all our might and the sophistication, these uh, fancy airplanes and the satellites, and whatever we have and whatever we don't have, etc., etc., Israel found it itself totally helpless. When it comes to a Palestinian kid turning himself into a living bomb, comes to one of the major streets uh, in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv. Secondly, since at this time he was already at least mentally prepared to the idea that a political solution is about to be obtained, I believe that he also saw defense as a future border though he always, you know, vigorously denying it. Always when he was asked about the fence, he say it is not a political fence, it's not a border, it's a sheer security measure. But truly, he did believe, at least deep in his heart, that this fence, by the virtue of the fact, will become sooner or later, most probably later, a border. Later on, the political process that was ignited and generated by the U.S., namely the marginalization of Arafat, bringing in people like Abbas and Salam Fayyad, who reformed Palestinian security agencies, the effective fight against terrorism within the Palestinian Authority, and Abbas's dedication and commitment to fight terrorism, this is the main reason, not the only one, but this is the main reason for the disappearance of institutional terrorism, of organized terrorism. So help us out, Steve, in understanding that evolution in American thinking and on how to work with Sharon beyond the Intifada. So David, I think the important thing that both of those initiatives, the security fight and Gaza disengagement, were not American initiatives, they were Sharon initiatives. So Sharon came to us with the security fence. And the concern was, we of course wanted a two-state solution as a result of negotiation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And the security fence was a dilemma for Bush because on the one hand, he supported the right of Israel to defend itself by itself, to have the capacity to defend itself by itself against terror. And so in that made him want to support the security fence as a way to reduce the risk of suicide bombers. On the other hand, he didn't want it to preempt or prejudge the final border between Israel and a Palestinian state, which should come out of the final status negotiations. 
So the way we resolved it was to get public commitments from Sharon, regardless of what was in his heart. What he said and committed to the American president was it was a security fence. It was not a putative border that the border between Israel and a Palestinian state would be the result of negotiation and that the root of the security fence would be something we would talk about with the Israelis and the root would reflect in part the impact on the Palestinian community. And with those assurances, we then supported the security fence. Gaza disengagement was a Sharon idea. It was very interesting because when it was briefed to the president, we learned about it in Israel and brought it to Washington, but Doobie can correct me. Secretary Powell and others in the room were very skeptical of Gaza disengagement. And the president happed up and said, it's a brilliant idea. We are going to support it because it's going to shake up the situation. You know, we had tried to get the political process going. We'd had a couple high-level summits. They really had not worked. Arafat had reasserted control. And this was going to shake up the status quo. And Bush made clear that he was prepared to support it. But we, in the discussions, had two conditions, again, of that support. One was, while Sharon wanted it to do it as a unilateral move, almost to reflect his anger at the Palestinians, we insisted that at least it had to be coordinated with the Palestinians, if not negotiated with the Palestinians, at least coordinated with the Palestinians. And the second thing, it could not be Gaza only. It had to be a vista that this was going to result in a movement toward a Palestinian state, which embraced both Gaza and the West Bank. So we insisted that the withdrawal from Gaza be accompanied from withdrawal from some of the areas on the West Bank, the northern areas and three settlement blocks in particular. Sharon was willing actually to contemplate a broader withdrawal from the West Bank at that point. And we actually counseled with him to do it incrementally at first because we were not confident that the Palestinian administration could actually administer and ensure security in a broader withdrawal from the West Bank. Were you confident that Sharon, once he gave his word that he was going to do it, there's going to be a lot of hailstorm of criticism on the right against Sharon, but that he would follow through and and the value of this presidential letter and and kind of sealing the deal in April 2004. This is really, I think, Doobie was the moving force behind this. This was an exchange of letters between Bush and Sharon. Sharon made a lot of commitments in his letter, including that he would support the two-state solution and move in that direction. But he needed some cover in order to do the Gaza disengagement, which followed this exchange of letters. And really the two features that he got, and Doobie can speak more about this, was one that, a statement that with the creation of a Palestinian state, it is only logical that Palestinians would return to that state rather than Israel. That was one commitment. And the second one was, that given realities on the ground, it is only realistic to assume that some large settlement blocks on the West Bank, Israeli settlement blocks on the West Bank, 
will end up as part of a final status solution as part of Israel, not part of a Palestinian state. This was a projection about realities. It was not prejudging the final status or the border, because that would be negotiated. But we were confident that Sharon wanted to resolve this issue one way or another, through negotiations if possible, through unilateral action if necessary. And in one of my trips to Israel, Sharon took me into his office. Doobie, I don't know whether you were there. It was, it was just Sharon and I, maybe one or two others. And he basically showed me the map of the level of incremental disengagements he would be willing to make, assuming there wasn't a negotiation, preference was negotiation, not a negotiation. He was willing to unilaterally withdraw to the point where 85% of the West Bank would be Palestinian, if you will. So we were confident that Sharon had decided, as Doobie said early on, that he was the one to make the peace and to resolve this long-standing issue with the Palestinians. Doobie, now over to you. If you could just tell us about Sharon's road to Gaza disengagement. The idea of leaving Gaza wasn't new. It was something that always was somehow hangs up in the air, unlike the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, which is part of you know, historic Eretz Israel, which is linked to our life. In all matters, geographically, demographically, biblically, religiously, spiritually, just name it. Gaza is Gaza. And that's how the idea of living Gaza, which always has been a very serious security concern, because the geography, the fact that it is 7,000 Israelis living, you know, in the heart of a solid block of those two million Palestinians in one of the most dense places in the world. And that's how it started. Next visit to Washington, I think it was end of October, early November, I briefed Condi about his intention. And as Steve rightly said, the initial U.S. reaction was, in a way, very skeptical. Also Condi, that was very much dedicated to preserve the roadmap process intact, she was a bit concerned how this move complies with the various stages of the roadmap. Because as everybody remembers, the roadmap calls for territorial changes only in its third stage. And we are hardly started the first phase. But once the idea was discussed, then of course the U.S. concur. And the visit in Israel that Steve has just mentioned, that's when we agreed over most of the aspects of the idea, the idea of exchanging of a letter, etc., etc. Steve just mentioned the issue of the symbolic withdrawal from the northern part of Judea and Samaria. I will happily remind him our dinner at this beautiful restaurant in Abu Ghosh. You know, Abu Ghosh is this little village in the skirts of uh, Jerusalem and in these very good little eastern restaurants on a napkin. And Steve's formula, which was historically recorded on a napkin in the caravan restaurant in Abu Ghosh, stated an equation, he called it boldness for boldness. Namely, will Israel just leave Gaza, part of Gaza? For the United States, it is 
in a way, a meaningless step. We will, of course, you know, we will praise every withdrawal, but to leave part of Gaza, the United States will not consider it as a meaningful political step. Withdrawal from Gaza in its entirety, from entire Gaza, this is already a significant step, and it will be responded with a certain U.S. statement. And if it is withdrawal from entire Gaza and an attach in the West Bank, which is, as I said, the U.S. condition, and again, the reason given to us, the United States, and also to a great extent, we didn't want the Gaza withdrawal to be considered as, in a way, a little Israeli-American conspiracy to the extent that we are leaving Gaza because everybody understood that Gaza is more a liability than an asset. And yet we will fortify our presence to the area. So one of the conditions set by the United States, as I said, was that there should be a certain withdrawal from settlement in Judea and Samaria. To Steve's point that Sharon showed a map, or you showed a map of future withdrawals in the West Bank. I think he said 85% of the West Bank. That was also a sense of confidence that in the longer term, Sharon was serious about a Palestinian state in the West Bank. I don't remember this particular scenario when he showed Steve the map, but I have a different or other indication which boils down to the same conclusion. Towards the end of his uh, term, I'm speaking about October, November 2005, actually a month before he had the first occurrence, two months before the final drop was, I think, January 6, 2005. Sharon appointed a team comprised of people from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from the military, from the General Security Service, etc., etc., its role was to screen and to prepare a paper describing old issues concerned a withdrawal from Judea and Samaria, not from the entire Judea and Samaria. So it's pretty sure it was in his mind, but in to what extent, what the dimensions, I cannot say. So let me just ask a concluding question to both of you. Steve, I'll start with you. What should we take away from this today, looking back at it 15 years later? One of the things I think is to try to really put yourself in the other person's shoes, to try to understand what their political problems and challenges are. The second thing I think is important is the relationship of trust that build up between the two teams and the frequent interaction back and forth. Doobie and his team coming to Washington, Condi going to Israel, Elliot and I going to Israel. This kind of in person, back and forth, spending lots of time with one another. There's no substitute for that. Third, we developed over time two, a series of principles about the U.S.-Israel relationship. And two of the ones I remember are no surprises. We would not surprise each other. And that's why, as Doobie mentioned, when the president was making a speech, we would be in touch with the Israelis and they would know what it was he was going to say and why he was going to say it. No surprises. And then as much as possible, no daylight between the position of the United States and the position of Israel on the key issues that mattered for Israel's future. But I have one footnote I want to say at the end. One of the things we did in 2000, I think, 2003, perhaps, is the president sent me and Bill Burns and and Elliot Abrams to Israel to talk to Sharon. 
about Israeli settlements and what could we do with respect to settlement freeze, which was an issue of the time. And I came with a letter to the president and I said to Sharon when we sat down, Prime Minister, the president of the United States has sent me to come and hear everything you have to say about settlements, about the settlement issues, why it matters to the state of Israel. And he's directed me to stay here until you have told us everything you want the president to know about your views on settlements. And Sharon was startled. And he said, no American has ever asked me that question before. Thank you very much, Steve. And, and you, Duby, concluding remarks, what do we learn from this whole period of the Bush-Sharon relationship and Gaza disengagement? Actually, I have nothing to add to what Steve said. In Yiddish, there is a statement which say, a mensch tracht und God lacht, which means a human being thinks, but God is laughing. I mean, uh, we were so much full of plans and idea and initiative towards the end of 2005, early 2006. Sharon founded Kadima, his party, because he realized that the Likud, according to him, is not the proper political platform to go on with his political vision, with his future plans with regard to the West Bank and other Arabic countries. And things, the political horizon looked so bright and promising. The last poll we had for Kadima, I think end of November, maybe December 2005, election were called for April 2006, that was indicated almost 50 MKs, Knesset members. We were expecting an overwhelming victory. And would it be the case that, of course, this whole, the role of history would be different. But as we say, we thought God was laughing. And by January, he became a vegetable. So, as I said, I mean, it's an episode, but the master of the world apparently thought differently. I want to thank you both for your time. You've been both very generous. Nice to be with you. Do be nice to talk to you again. Thank you, Steve. Take care. The image of Sharon embodies a very confident Israeli. Yet he was anything but confident when he dealt with George W. Bush in 2001. After all, he had been marginalized by the United States for his past actions. Now he was being ushered into the Oval Office. Sharon didn't sleep the night before. We now learn complicating factors about Sharon's hearing and his poor English. Moreover, the desire of the United States to maintain close ties with the Arab states in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 also made Sharon fearful that Israel would be sacrificed on the altar of geopolitics. Yet then things turned around. On Gaza disengagement, we learned from Steve Hadley that Israel was willing to evacuate 17 West Bank settlements, not just four. Yet the Bush White House feared that the Palestinian Authority could not manage the aftermath in terms of security. You know, there had been some speculation about Sharon's plans after Gaza disengagement, but I think the conversation we just heard from Steve and Duby confirms this at a very high level. Sharon was someone who defined his life through the prism of Israel's security. As controversial as his military career was, His tenure as prime minister reflected his definition of leadership. Sharon defined leadership as national responsibility. 
And this required action. And whenever it came to action, Ariel Sharon did not shy away. Thank you all very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all.